Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 22 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In the three months up to the end of April 2010, the Information Commissioner published 150 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 19. In this episode, we'll be concentrating on the decisions of the Information Tribunal, or, as it's now called for most appeals, the first-tier tribunal information rights. Sometimes the more complex FOI appeals are heard in the upper tribunal. Of course, these terms don't quite roll off the tongue, so I'm going to refer to both as the tribunal. All the decisions we discuss today are from the first-tier tribunal. In this episode, amongst others, we'll be discussing decisions involving late reliance on exemptions, vexatious requests, information about animal testing, disclosure of historic personal data, disclosure of anonymised data, the Church of Scientology, and disclosure of legal advice. I'd like to start off, though, by discussing recent cases involving local authority land charges information, which will have a big impact on local authorities' ability to charge for such information. Anyone who sold a house will know all about the need for a CON29 search, which is supplied to the buyer as part of the compulsory home information pack. This involves requesting the local authority to conduct a search of the land charges register, as well as other registers, and to answer certain standard questions designed to establish whether the property in question was, or might become, affected by certain activities. For example, footpaths, planning permissions, etc. Traditionally, this has been a lucrative source of local authority income, thanks to the Local Authorities' Charges for Property Searchers Regulations, 2008. It is possible to obtain the answers to most of the questions set out in the Form CON29 by inspecting various public registers maintained by local authorities, as well as from other sources. A number of private organisations have developed services for obtaining the necessary information in this way and providing it to property sellers and those advising them. The fees charged by local authorities for these personal searches are much lower, but vary widely. Over the past few years, a number of local authorities have faced challenges from these property search companies who see the CON29 regime as a costly system which unjustly allows local authorities to exploit their monopolistic position as controllers of property search records. In March 2010, the High Court judgment was handed down in One Search Direct and City of York Council. The case involved an attempt by a property search company, OneSearch, to gain direct access to unrefined property records held by the council. The advantage to OneSearch of gaining such direct access is that it would not have to pay to receive the relevant property search information through the CON29 system. When OneSearch's request for direct access was refused by the council, it brought a claim for judicial review. In that claim, which was treated as a test case, OneSearch argued that denying access to the unrefined records was unlawful, having regard to the statutory purpose and intention underlying the relevant local authority legislative scheme. The judge rejected OneSearch's claim. He ruled that it was entirely lawful and in accordance with the statutory scheme for the council to opt to provide the relevant property search information through the CON29 system. It's interesting to note that the rights of access available under the Environmental Information Regulations were not relied upon by OneSearch in this case. This is surprising since the Information Commissioner issued guidance in July of last year on the relationship between the Property Search Regulations and the Environmental Information Regulations. 
The Commissioner insists that most of the information requested by personal search companies is environmental and that councils are obliged to allow inspection for free. The guidance was issued at the same time as a number of decision notices against local authorities to this effect. Recently, in East Riding of Yorkshire Council and the Information Commissioner, the Tribunal was called upon to determine this very question, whether the environmental information regulations applied to property search information and whether that information should be made available through the regulations free of charge. More particularly, the Tribunal had to determine whether the local authority was required to allow the company to inspect the information free at the local authority's premises under Regulation 6, or was entitled to refuse inspection and make the information available by way of hard copy documents for which charges could be levied under Regulation 8. The Council relied on the wording of Regulation 6 as well as Regulation 8 in support of its position. Regulation 6 states, where an applicant requests that the information be made available in a particular form or format, a public authority shall make it so available unless it is reasonable for it to make the information available in another form or format. The Council claimed that it was not reasonable for the company to insist that the information be made available by way of inspection because it would need further collation by the Council. Accordingly, it said that the information should be made available as a document in collated form and, relying on Regulation 8, it said that it wished to charge for that information. The Council's argument that it would not be reasonable to allow access to the information directly was also based on other factors, including the possibility of unauthorised access to personal data, were the company be given direct access to the systems on which the information was contained, and the risk of the data being manipulated. After having made a number of findings as to the weakness of certain aspects of the Council's evidence, the Tribunal went on to hold that the Council ought, in fact, to have permitted the company to inspect the relevant records free of charge under Regulation 6. The key points of this decision are inspection of information under the regulations is free. Authorities who seek to resist a request to inspect environmental information, especially in the area of CON 29 search information, must provide good evidence that an alternative method of providing information is reasonable. And finally, collation of information is no barrier to inspection under Regulation 6. This judgment is important both because of its careful examination of the principles relating to charging under the Environmental Information Regulations and because of its implications for local authority charging regimes in respect of property search information. Demand for this information may reduce, as the Conservatives as well as the Liberal Democrats have said in their manifestos, that they would scrap the home information packs. The question remains as to whether this is going to be one of the legislative priorities of the new CONLIB alliance. Can a public authority rely on exemptions for the first time before the Commissioner or the Tribunal? In Crown Prosecution Service and the Information Commissioner, the CPS initially relied on Section 351A, Formulation and Development of Government Policy, to refuse disclosure of information. When appealing to the Tribunal, it invoked Section 351B, ministerial communications, as well as Section 42, legal professional privilege. Finally, during the tribunal proceedings, it also raised Section 40, personal data, for the first time. The tribunal did not accept the CPS's contention that it was obliged to accept the claiming of late exemptions. 
it said that it could only do so in exceptional circumstances on a case-by-case -case basis. The tribunal decided to allow late reliance on section 40 and 42, but not on section 351b. In doing so, it endorsed the principles set out in Home Office and the Ministry of Justice and the Information Commissioner, and approved the quotation cited in that case from yet another tribunal decision in Department of Business and Regulatory Reform and the Information Commissioner. At paragraph 72 of that decision, the tribunal stated that the tribunal may decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether an exemption can be claimed outside the time limits, depending on the circumstances of the particular case. Moreover, the tribunal considers that it was not the intention of Parliament that public authorities should be able to claim late and or new exemptions without reasonable justification, otherwise there's a real risk that the complaint or appeal process could become cumbersome, uncertain and could lead to public authorities to take a cavalier attitude to their obligations. The tribunal in the CPS case also considered whether the Information Commissioner is under a duty to consider exemptions himself that are not raised by a public authority during an appeal. Here, following the approach in Brobrick and Nottingham City Council, it said in exceptional cases the Commissioner is entitled to look for an appropriate exemption but there was no positive duty for it to do so. Public authorities should think very carefully and take legal advice before citing exemptions in their refusal notice. If any exemptions are missed, it is by no means certain that they can still be invoked for the first time before the Commissioner or Tribunal, or that the Commissioner will look for an appropriate exemption of his own accord. There is now a fair amount of jurisprudence from the Tribunal on what constitutes a vexatious request under Section 14.1. The Information Commissioner's guidance which has been approved by the Tribunal, sets out questions to be considered. These are, can the request fairly be seen as obsessive? Is the request harassing the authority or causing distress to staff? Would complying with the request impose a significant burden in terms of expense and distraction? Is the request designed to cause disruption or annoyance? Does the request lack any serious purpose or value? In Tony Wise and the Information Commissioner, Lancashire County Council was asked for its written policies and procedures on information sharing with other public authorities. This followed two allegations about the appellant made to the Council's Social Services Department in May and June 2006. These were investigated by the Council and found to be untrue. The appellant was aggrieved about information being passed on by the Council to the police, so he made complaints about this to the IPCC the Council and the Local Government Ombudsman, all of whom thoroughly investigated them. Applying the Information Commissioner's guidance, the Tribunal upheld the decision that the request was vexatious. Amongst other things, it took account of the appellant's aggressive, accusatory and harassing tone in correspondence with the Council, the volume of the appellant's correspondence, which contained lists of questions, the fact that the appellant did not wait for the response to one information request before making the next one, and the fact that the requests were part of a campaign against the Council. Section 38 provides that information is exempt if its disclosure would or would be likely to endanger the physical or mental health of any individual and or the safety of any individual. The term endanger is the same as prejudice used in other exemptions. Section 38 is a qualified exemption and so requires consideration of the public interest test. It was recently relied upon successfully in People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals Europe and the Information Commissioner and Oxford University. 
This case concerned experiments performed on a macaque, a type of monkey, by an Oxford University professor. This was the subject of a BBC documentary in November 2006 entitled Monkey Rats and Me. The appellant, an animal rights pressure group, sought extracts from the relevant Home Office project licence concerning, amongst other things, the work plan and purposes behind those experiments. The tribunal applied Hogan and Oxford City Council and the Information Commissioner where it ruled that the application of the prejudice test involved a number of steps, namely, the tribunal needs to identify the applicable interests within the relevant exemption. The nature of the endangerment being claimed must be considered. Some causal relationship must exist between the potential disclosure and the endangerment. The endangerment must be real, actual or of substance. And, where a public authority is relying upon the would-be-likely-to-endanger limb of Section 38, the tribunal must be satisfied that there is a real and significant risk of endangerment, even if it cannot be said that the occurrence of endangerment is more probable than not. The tribunal in the present case found that Section 38 was engaged. Given the indiscriminate nature of the violence tending to accompany the publication of information about animal experiments at Oxford, it gave weight to the evidence submitted by the university of a long list of attacks and incidents which took place following the showing of the BBC documentary. This allowed it to be satisfied that disclosure of the information would increase the risk of endangerment to its staff as well as anyone visiting or associated with the university. In terms of the public interest, the tribunal ruled that the public interest in withholding the information outweighed the public interest in disclosure. It gave weight to the need for transparency in the way experiments were conducted on animals to allow public debate and scrutiny. However, the risk to those working in this field was judged to be so great that it outweighed the former. The tribunal also identified the fact that private sector organisations applying for the same Home Office licence were not subject to the FOI regime. In the light of the risk of endangerment, the tribunal was satisfied that it was in the public interest that there should be a level playing field, so that those working for public bodies engaged in this type of work were not exposed to a greater risk than their counterparts in the private sector. There have now been many decisions of the Commissioner, the Tribunal and the Courts on disclosure of anonymised information. The Commissioner has previously argued that such information where the individual cannot be identified by the recipient is not personal data. This was until the Tribunal looked at this issue in various cases including the Department of Health and the Information Commissioner and the Pro-Life Alliance. Here the Tribunal ruled that anonymised data could still be personal data in the hands of the data controller if there is further information in the hands of the controller which would allow the subjects to be identified. This reasoning was applied recently in Magafelt District Council and the Information Commissioner. Following an FOI request, the Council disclosed the numbers of staff disciplined and dismissed over a four-year period. However, it would not disclose the penalty issued or the reason for the action against those disciplined. It also refused to disclose the reasons for dismissal. The Tribunal ruled that this was personal data and went on to consider whether disclosure would be fair and lawful in accordance with the first data protection principle. It accepted that employees had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Integral to the question whether disclosure, despite this expectation, was fair was the related question whether there was a real risk of identification by the public if the information were to be disclosed. 
It was argued by the council that it would be easy for a journalist, speaking to other members of the council's staff, to identify the individuals referred to in the information. The tribunal, whilst clear that read on its own, the information would not identify particular individuals, did accept, given the small size of the authority and the local population, that it would not be hard for a journalist to take steps to identify the individuals in question. This could then lead to a widespread publication of the names of the individuals, the disciplinary offences they had committed and the sanctions received. The tribunal accepted that further investigative steps would need to be taken in order to identify the individuals. However, given that these did not appear to be onerous or unlikely, it would be artificial for the tribunal to ignore what appeared to be a very real risk. The tribunal concluded, therefore, that public disclosure of the information would be unfair to the data subjects, the employees in question, such that disclosure would be a breach of the first data protection principle. For the sake of completeness, the tribunal also went on to consider whether disclosure could be justified on one of the grounds in Schedule 2 of the Data Protection Act. The tribunal concluded that it was not necessary within the terms of paragraph 6 of Schedule 2 for there to be disclosure of the information. The legitimate interest in disclosure of information about disciplinary expenses, such as they were, had already been met by a means that interfered less with the data subject's interest, that is, by the previous release of information about numbers and types of offences and sanctions. In the light of the above, the tribunal concluded that disclosure of the remaining information would be a breach of the first data protection principle and that the absolute exemption under section 40 subsection 2 applied. Contrast this decision with William Thackeray and the Information Commissioner and the General Medical Council, where the tribunal ruled that the GMC should have disclosed internal correspondence about a fitness-to-practice panel members' links with the Church of Scientology. The GMC had argued that this was personal data, disclosure of which would breach the first data protection principle. It was the appellant's case, much of which the tribunal agreed with, that the Scientology leadership is opposed as a matter of religious belief, to the practice of psychiatry, and therefore it cannot be right that a person having links to such an organisation should sit on a panel which may be required to make judgments on psychiatrists. He submitted that by not declaring his connection to Scientology, in the light of the published opposition to psychiatry and psychiatrists, the panel member may have breached the ethical conditions of his new role and committed misconduct. The appellant submitted that the panel member can have no reasonable expectation that such misconduct would be kept private. The tribunal concluded that disclosure would not be unfair and was necessary in the legitimate interests of the requester and these interests outweighed any impact on the panel member. In coming to this conclusion it took account of, amongst other things, the role of the member, sitting in judgment on others, the seniority of the member, and the fact that he had not declared his connection with the Church of Scientology to the GMC. Just because personal data was collected many years ago does not necessarily mean that disclosure of it will be fair to the data subjects. The Section 40 exemption may still apply. In Guy Etchell's and the Information Commissioner, the Tribunal ruled that disclosure of information which had been gathered back in 1939 as part of national registration was exempt under Section 40 being third-party personal data. The 1939 register listed individuals who lived at particular addresses at a particular time. 
The tribunal agreed with the commissioner that when the information was obtained and at the date that the information request was considered, the public expectation was that in the ordinary course of events, personal information obtained in this way would not be disclosed whilst the individual was alive. Whilst any information about deceased subjects would not be subject to section 40, the tribunal noted that the average life expectancy had gone up considerably over the last 150 years, so that it cannot be assumed that the subjects would no longer be around. The Section 42 exemption for legally privileged information has been the subject of much scrutiny by the Tribunal. The High Court in Department for Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform and O'Brien has considered, and to a great extent, approved the Tribunal's case law on this exemption. This case law was recently followed in Christopher Bellamy and the Information Commissioner and the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, dated the 23rd of February of this year. The Tribunal upheld the decision of the Commissioner that legal advice about the legality of a trading scheme should not be disclosed. Two factors were given specific weight in deciding where the public interest lay, namely the age of the advice and whether it was still alive. The Tribunal ruled that where legal advice is recent and informs ongoing policy-making, such that, for example, it may turn out to be relevant to a possible legal challenge, the importance of protecting the confidentiality of the advice is heightened. And finally, the outcome of the election will have a big impact on freedom of information law and practice. The Conservative plan to cut the financial deficit quickly will mean massive cuts in the public sector spending, up to £6 billion in the first year. This will no doubt lead to many more freedom of information requests to local authorities as well as other public sector organisations from interested parties including the media, unions as well as disgruntled employees. It's also worth noting that the CONLIB Alliance Agreement includes a commitment to extend the scope of the Freedom of Information Act. This is no surprise as both parties have pledged this in their manifesto. The Lib Dems made mention of bringing private companies under the Act if they are delivering monopoly services to the public. They specifically made mention of Network Rail, but it may be assumed that this may even extend to utility organisations like water and power companies. The era of openness and transparency is here to stay. Watch this space. That concludes episode 22 of the Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in September. Before then, you can always catch up on the latest developments by attending one of my FOI update workshops or downloading my free FOI web seminars. More details at www.actnow.org.uk Don't forget, ActNow Training is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB Certificate in Freedom of Information. The next courses start on June the 8th in London and Edinburgh. There are just a few places left, so if you'd like to know more, please email info at actnow.org.uk. Actnow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI as well as your environmental information requests and possible responses. Through the helpline, I will be available to guide you through the relevant area of law discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the ActNow FOI helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening.
Until the next time, goodbye.